Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Full Stack Journey Podcast, where we talk about the evolution of the IT professional and the ongoing journey of learning that is so much a core part of our industry. If this is your first time listening to the podcast, thanks so much for joining us. I am excited and thankful to have you here. The purpose of the podcast is to share practical, usable, actionable, real-world information on the various technologies and products across the full stack of the cloud and today's modern data centers. And the goal is to help IT professionals extend their knowledge across these silos and become more familiar with the different pieces that reside among the various layers of the modern data center stack. If you're a returning listener, then welcome back. I'm glad I didn't scare you away. Thanks for joining us again. Today, I'm excited to be talking with Sebastian Goazgin uh, with Bitnami, and we're going to be talking about Kubernetes. Sebastian, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Scott. And uh, as you said, good afternoon, good evening. What is it? Good morning, everyone. <laughs> That's right. We're trying to catch everyone. No telling when uh, when they might be listening to the podcast. So we just throw it all in there. Um, Sebastian, I'm, I'm you know familiar. We, we met um, in person several years ago here in Denver, and then I've been following some of your work. But for the listeners who, who may not be familiar with you, why don't you just take um, you know a couple minutes and kind of fill everybody in on you know where you came from, where you are, what you're doing these days, that sort of thing. Sure, no problem. Uh, we can do that. So I've been I've been doing IT for you know over twenty years. So it's been it's been quite a while. It's been a journey, uh, and and most relevant to the, the the podcast. You know, I spend a lot of time on virtual machine, uh, virtual machine provisioning, virtual machine orchestration. So that that's where we we met. You know, back in the uh, uh, cloud stack, open nebula, open stack, uh, open stack days. So I spent a lot of time doing this. And uh, you know, the last uh, four years, I also started looking at uh, at containers heavily. I'm a lifelong learner, so you know, I want to make sure I, I stay up to date with uh, with all the tech. So I, I spend a lot of time learning new things like containers and, of course, Kubernetes. So these days, I'm extremely active in the Kubernetes community. Uh, I enjoy writing uh, blogs and uh, and books, you know, from time to time. And my uh, my day-to-day job is actually Senior Director of Cloud Technologies at Bitnami, where I lead all the uh, Kubernetes efforts that uh, that we do. Awesome, awesome. I think, if I recall correctly, you did um, a Docker book with O'Reilly a little while back. Is that right? Yeah, that's how I got started with uh, with Docker. And that you know that that's the funny story is that uh, I. Uh, I was paying attention to what was going on with containers, and I was a little bit uh, startled by why are containers getting getting back into uh, into fame? You know, because at the time we were still working on on VMs, and uh, I was like, okay, we need to pay attention to containers, and what's the best way to learn? You know, containers to to actually start from scratch, and then pay attention to the new technologies. and uh, And I, I contacted O'Reilly, and I said, hey, how about I write you a, a cookbook? So I started writing the Docker cookbook. Uh, so that helped me uh, understand uh, Docker uh, much better, and that's also how I discovered Kubernetes. So oh, awesome, awesome! Yeah, I've actually read. Um, I have a copy of the uh, Docker cookbook, and listeners, I'll put a link to the book in the show notes. I have a copy of that in my uh, my offline uh, Safari Books online subscription in case I ever need it while I'm traveling or something. So it's been very useful. Thanks for writing that. Cool, no problem. So today uh, we want to talk about you know Kubernetes, and I know you've been spending a lot of time there, as you mentioned. And uh, but before we get there, I think it might be helpful for listeners to first sort of set the stage for why Kubernetes is important. So before we dig into Kubernetes sort of specifically, I wonder let let's chat for a minute about sort of containers and container orchestration, and 
help people understand, you know, this is why, you know, what's happening in the orchestration space and specifically on Kubernetes is, is of particular importance and, and, you know, why we think this is a, a technology and a, and a solution that people should be familiar with. So in that context, can you spend just a minute first, let's talk briefly about sort of the resurgence of containers with Docker. Cause like you, I'm, you know, like, Hey, containers coming back again, what's up with this. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and then why orchestration is there, you know, why orchestration is kind of important. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so, so, so containers, you know, for for guys like you and I, it's been uh, it's been interesting to see containers coming back in the in the forefront because we had Solaris zones for a while, we had OpenVZ and so on. So it's been uh, it's been very interesting, especially that the industry was was very focused on on virtual machines from let's say 2005 to 2013 you know or so so we spent almost 10 years really focusing on virtual machines and then we got a little bit you know surprised by the uh, rejuvenation of uh, of containers coming with uh, with docker so you know for me a cont- it's it's important to demystify containers and you know basically they are a way to package application that's why we do it at bitnami because we we package apps uh, but at the end of the day, a container is really a Linux process that's running on your machine. And that process is constrained in terms of uh, amount of resources, CPU and RAM that it can use. That's what we call C groups. And then that process exists in different Linux namespaces. And those Linux namespaces are, for example, different file system, uh, different process ID namespace, different network namespace. And it's actually super, super interesting to go and, and spend some time with the basics, even using the Docker CLI, and start running some of those processes and understanding the concept of Linux namespace. So, you know, uh, start using Docker. Uh, it's a great CLI. That's why it, uh, it got so much attention. It's an extremely nice wrapper on top of C groups and Linux namespaces. So you use that CLI, and then you start really understanding, almost reverse engineering the concept of, uh, of containers, and you can start playing with those Linux namespaces and, and C groups and really understand what it is. And I, I want to, and, and so those, that's great information. I want to point out a couple of things that, that sort of kind of jumped out at me in that. Um, first of all, I noticed you know, we, we often refer to containers as, we often say that it is a process um, which is wrapped in a set of namespaces and then you know access resource control controlled via C groups. And I think that was something that that at least for me, and I don't know about for you, kind of threw me at first when I first started getting into Docker because I was looking at containers and I was making comparisons back to things like zones and LXC, which are very different than sort of how Docker does containers, um, which is more of a single process model. Would you agree? I would agree, except that you know, Docker really doesn't force you really in that single process uh, setup. You could you could run multiple processes, and actually at the beginning when when people you know started moving from VMs to containers, they started running an SSH server inside the uh, inside the container. They started having like a, a full Linux distribution inside that container. So you know we were trying to map a virtual machine view of the world into the container world. But really, if you deconstruct everything at you know its simplest form, that's where you get down to a single process that exists you know with in those namespaces and with that C group. Um, so you know it's it's interesting. You can you can expand that uh, 
that 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 mindset and uh you know i think that the, the basic uh, way of using those containers is really the single the single process definitely lxc is you know is something a little bit different it feels more like a, a real a real vm uh but the the docker container for me is really just a process right right no you're absolutely correct i mean there's no sort of forcing function it just seems like that's sort of the um the sweet spot if you will of how you really Take advantage of of Docker as a as a container mechanism, as opposed to some of the others. Um, and I've heard some people turn, throw around the idea of you know uh, system containers versus application containers, but then that gets really confusing. Yeah. So, um, so thinking about that, uh, you know, sort of this this sweet spot being a single process model, then I think it's probably it probably makes sense that readers can or listeners. I always say that after so many years of writing a blog, listeners can um, can sort of extrapolate from there that. As we move from a VM, which may contain multiple processes in a single sort of logical construct, into a container where we would typically separate those processes into different containers, that we might see um, uh, a growth in the number of things that we're managing in terms of you know VMs versus containers. You might have ten VMs, you might have a hundred containers to do the same sort of function, and that probably leads into this need for container orchestration. Yeah, to- totally. And uh, you know, you mentioned the Docker cookbook, and I, as I was writing the the book, you know, right right away, the the one thing that startled me is, well, you're going to need something to actually orchestrate those processes, those containers, right? And at the time, there was no Swarm, so basically, Docker was really an, a super nice tool for developers, uh, and they were going to use this on a, a single machine, okay? Uh, and then I remember being in Amsterdam at the, the first KubeCon Europe, and that was December 2015. That's when they announced Docker Machine, and they announced the first swarm. And the first Docker swarm was very much, hey, you have a cluster of Docker engine. So you have several Linux servers that run the, the Docker daemon at the time, you know, it was called. Um, and then swarm was very much a, an API proxy dispatching Docker request to those uh, to those nodes, so that you could start a container on one node and then a container on, on another node. So that that was the beginning beginning of actually using Docker uh, in a, a real cluster, you know, more data center like environment. Uh, but then at the time there was no virtual network, and you and you know a lot about virtual networking. So there was there was no overlay, there was no network to be able to get those containers to talk to each other. So it, it was clear that there was going to be, you know, a lot of work needed to to solve this problem of orchestrating those containers in the data center. And you know, I, I always like putting things into context and, and looking at the history. So if you look at the way things progressed, you know, it went from the the first swarm being announced to Docker Inc. actually acquiring a, a, a networking startup called Socketplane and the network overlay that you know these guys had built got integrated into Swarm. And then later on, you know, the Docker released uh, the new Swarm mode in, uh, in June uh, 2016. So, I mean, my point being that, yes, starting single processes, starting single containers is, you know, a fairly straightforward uh, job. But when you start building an application that's a distributed app that needs multiple processes and different types of apps and, uh, and you need to take care of, you know, those processes discovering each other. Uh, you need to take care of uh, restarting them when they fail. You need to, uh, you know, take care of what's their IP address and what's the DNS name. 
that's when you need a full uh, orchestrating system. You know, that's that's the term that we've all settled on. And it's very much like an orchestrator for VMs. Okay, it's it's just now an orchestrator for containers. Now your your compute unit is now a container instead of a, a VM. Which then, of course, naturally brings us to the discussion of Kubernetes. You mentioned Swarm as one of the sort of the early orchestration tools, and then the evolution of Swarm into Swarm mode, and then and then out of you know Google comes this thing about you know Kubernetes um, to help you know provide this level of container orchestration. Um, so you know, t- talk to us a little bit about you know Kubernetes and and, and you know, why it's important and sort of some of the problems that it solves. Help help the, the listeners sort of understand you know what what the purpose of this thing is. Yeah, so so Kubernetes, you know, it's a Greek term. It means uh, the captain of the ship. So it's a, in, in relation to the uh, the nautical theme of uh, containers that you put on a on a ship and that are portable. So Kubernetes is basically in charge of you know, a, a, a cluster, uh, a group of, uh, of server, and then Kubernetes can orchestrate the containers that are running in that cluster. That means that it can scale the number of containers, it can shut them down, bring them up, it can give you discovery, uh, it can give you configuration of, uh, of containers. Uh, so that, that's, that's what we mean by uh, an orchestrator. And, and why, why is it why is it a good solution? And, and the reason why I jumped on Kubernetes uh, very early is, is very much uh, related to the, the roots of Kubernetes, what inspired Kubernetes. So, and I think you will appreciate that, that when Google started building their infrastructure, um, hardware accelerated virtualization didn't exist. There was no VTS in the, in the processors. So they, they naturally um, gravitated towards containerization and they built their own container engine, which is called LMCTFY. You can actually find it on, uh, on GitHub. It stands for, let me contain that for you. So they built their own container engine and then they started building their own orchestrator. And that orchestrator became uh, a secret project called Borg. Okay, And, and these days, you know, a lot of people talk about the Borg paper. It was kept a secret a long time by Google. Uh, but then, you know, it was publicly announced in like at a conference in June 2015 um, and Borg, which they use internally, totally inspired Kubernetes. So Kubernetes is a rewrite in the open of their internal system, Borg. And why is it really interesting is because things like Gmail, Google Apps, uh, YouTube, they run on top of that Borg orchestrator. So if you are trying to choose an orchestrator that makes sense, that's, that, that can scale, if you need that type of scale and, and so on, uh, Kubernetes makes total sense because the, the best practices and the lessons learned from Google engineer got put inside the, the Kubernetes system. So I, I'll let you ask a question and then I'll keep on going. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, that's perfect. Thank you. Thank you, Sebastian. Um, so we have Kubernetes coming out of out of Google and out of their sort of um, you know lessons learned in building this this massively scalable you know container orchestrator that they were using internally, and so they do this out in the open with, with you know with Kubernetes and it's been evolving since then. But we've talked about container orchestration. We talk about you know why it's necessary, and then and I heard you mention a couple of things, and I was wondering if you could just kind of talk about those uh, specifically a bit. Some of the challenges that come around 
deploying a bunch of different containers. You mentioned, you know, service discovery, IP addressing, restarting them. Are these things that Kubernetes is, is attempting to address or is it providing a framework to help people address them? Oh, it's totally addressing those issues. Uh, it's, it's addressing those issues uh, head on because it's, uh, it's built in. It's built in into the system. So, you know, I was, I was starting to introduce Kubernetes and, uh, and really, you know, I started digging into it when I was writing the Docker cookbook because I thought that there was definitely a need for an orchestrator. And the first thing that struck me when I was uh, starting into Kubernetes is that once you were running a container, so let's, let's now call that an app, an application. Once you were running an application on Kubernetes, it was extremely hard to kill. Okay. You could lose, you could lose the Kubernetes control plane. Your app would still be up. You could, you, you could lose uh, a node, a physical node or a virtual machine. If you are deploying a virtual machine, your app would, would still be up. Then you could, you know, reboot your control plane. As long as you don't lose the the state, uh, the system would recover and and would start running properly. So that was my first experience when I when I started running Kubernetes, and I felt like the system was extremely resilient, and was keeping my application alive all the time. I could scale with just a simple API call. I could configure it with a simple API call. And then the application would stay up almost all the time. So, you know, the, the, the system, Kubernetes provides a platform to do a bunch of other things. And it's actually becoming a framework to build additional system. At, at Bitnami, we're, we're starting to develop a serverless solution called Kubeless, which is really a, an extension of Kubernetes. But the core of Kubernetes addresses all the, the needs of, uh, of container orchestration. So let's dig into the Kubernetes architecture a little bit because I want to help listeners understand sort of how um, at a high level, and then we'll talk about some getting started resources, how at a high level Kubernetes does this, this thing that you were talking about, about making your application or enabling your application to be very, very resilient, very resistant to failure. Um, so what are, the, what are the key components that sort of jump out at you right away about how Kubernetes was built? So the, the, the first thing that jumped out of me when I looked at Kubernetes was that the, the high-level architecture was a, actually very simple uh, and quite traditional. There is a head node, a single head node that runs an API server and then a scheduler. Okay, What the scheduler does is that when Kubernetes receives a request saying, hey, you need, I need to run this container, the scheduler runs and looks at all the nodes in the cluster and then says, hey, you're going to run on node you know, 22. Uh, so you have this head node. And then you have the worker nodes. And what are the worker nodes? They're traditional Linux servers. You know, They run systemd, whatever. And then they have a, an agent, a Kubernetes agent that's called the kubelet. And the kubelet interacts upstream, I would say, with the API server in the head node and also interacts locally with the Docker engine, and now actually potentially uh, a different uh, container runtime. So, you know, if people can picture that in their head, that, that's what I mean by fairly straightforward. You have a head node that runs API server scheduler. You have a set of worker nodes that run an agent, and then there is a very clear protocol, you know, for, for them to, uh, 
to talk. It's secure with TLS. The API is very well documented and, and so on. The, the state of the cluster now, instead of being, you know, stored in a, a traditional relational database like MySQL for CloudStack, for example, and then I don't know what it is for uh, for OpenStack. I, I don't remember. But in the in the case of Zookeeper, uh, sorry, in the case of Kubernetes, the state of the cluster is now stored in a etcd, which is a distributed key value store created by the the folks from CoreOS. And this distributed key value store is very much like something like Zookeeper, and you can run it on multiple nodes, so the data gets replicated, and it's also extremely fault tolerant. So that's the that's the high level architecture. And what I what I tell people, you know, I tell them, hey, think about OpenStack or CloudStack or Mesos. Think about those high level architecture, and you realize that it's exactly the same thing. You got a head node running, you know, the components of what people call a control plane, and then you got the worker nodes that run uh, an agent. So at a, at a high level, you know, I, I didn't touch on a couple of things, but that's that's the high level architecture. Yeah, and, and it's it's interesting. Um, I hadn't given that much thought to it, but you're right. You know, at a high level, as you begin to abstract some of the some of the details away, um, you know, the idea of having a controller, um, if we use that term, is is common to you know OpenStack deployments. It's common to um, CloudStack deployments, and of course, we have this uh, sim- similar idea. You know, what you call the head node in Kubernetes, which runs the API server and the scheduler and whatever other processes that you want. Um, so yeah, there are some similarities in the architecture. The difference, of course, comes in sort of how they store the state using um, etcd as opposed to you know MySQL or MariaDB or whatever, um, and uh, and then um, you know using containers instead of you know instead of VMs. Although we should yeah. point out at this point that we the, the Kubernetes uses a, another sort of abstraction there that they call the pod, right? Yeah. Yeah, so uh, you know what what I described is the the, the very you know first order approach. Uh, one one question that people ask is that you know they, they, they quickly they ask, but what about HA? And it's like yes, of course you can run multiple master, uh, multiple head node with a load balancer in front. So you got you got those HA features, and then there is this this abstraction. Uh, you're right. The core abstraction of Kubernetes is not the container; it's called the pod. And what's a pod? So a pod is actually a group of containers that always need to be scheduled together. Uh, and the pod also has attached volumes. So one, one way I like to explain pod is to, is to say, well, you know what? Basically, a pod is a server. Okay, So he, he, hear me out. <laughs> uh, a, a server usually you know, runs a set of Linux processes, and then it has some, some volumes for data. And that it's reachable via a single IP address. Okay, that's an abstraction of a server. So that's that's what a pod is. A pod has a single IP address. Uh, it has a set of Linux processes. Quote: They are containers, and then it has a set of volume definitions. So all of this makes a pod. And then basically, what Kubernetes does is that it schedules those pods in your data center. Okay. So that that that's the key uh, that's the key abstraction the pod and then if we want to dig deeper then we have to to start digging to all the API objects that that make Kubernetes so amazing replica sets and deployment objects and config maps so there there are quite uh, quite a few API objects that that people need to need to learn and it's a little bit overwhelming at first 
but you know, after a while, you you get you get used to it, to them. Probably the biggest change, the, the the biggest difficulty, is to understand the concept of services. There's a there's a service abstraction uh, in the in Kubernetes. That's uh, that's tough to to grab. It's it's a way of of giving your microservice a fixed virtual IP. And no matter what happens in your data center, your microservice will, will always be available at that uh, IP address. But I'm, I'm digressing a little bit here. No, no. Actually, I think I think the service talking about the service is actually really important because in my mind, and, and and you know, feel free to disagree. But in my mind, as I look at the architecture of Kubernetes, one of the things that really enables this this application resiliency is the fact that you know pods, i.e., containers. Um, can you know spin up and die, um, and we don't have to constantly sort of um, you know change how other uh, users or services or applications access that because we have this this service abstraction, this virtual IP sitting in front of it, and so um, it, it gives a, it brings a level of consistency or or um, durability. That's uh, probably not the right term, but. Um, this abstraction, the service abstraction, really enables a lot of the things that we do with Kubernetes. You know, rolling updates and all that kind of all hide behind, if you will, that that service object. Yeah, totally. You're you're, you're totally right. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit difficult to to understand at at first, but you're right. This this abstra- this service abstraction is extremely powerful. Uh, if pods go down and if pods get scheduled on different nodes and get different IP addresses in the internal network of, of Kubernetes, uh, the, the microservice will still be reachable at a fixed uh, endpoint or a fixed IP. And that's, that's extremely powerful. Uh, yeah, tot- I totally agree with you. You know, all the, the features that you, know, that you can do, such as rolling updates or canary deployment, uh, a, uh, blue-green deployment, all of this is, is feasible because of the, the service abstraction. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I, I think that's that's the one thing that um, I, I don't know. You know, if I need to like do a whole podcast just on services or what, but that's a really powerful piece, and I would encourage readers, listeners, excuse me, <laughs> as you as you begin to explore Kubernetes, you know, really takes the time to kind of understand that that service abstraction um, because it is it is a really powerful tool. So Sebastian, let's let's shift gears just a little bit. I think we've given listeners enough of a sort of a framework to understand the architecture of Kubernetes. Um, as you pointed out, there, there's a lot there. You know, there's all these API objects and uh, all these things to sort of understand. And there's a different um, a different set of terminology. Although you've done a great job um, to map that terminology back to concepts that people know and understand. So I appreciate that. But let's talk about how somebody who might be familiar with other systems, maybe they're coming out of a cloud stack environment or an open stack environment or whatever the case may be. And they they're trying to wrap their head around Kubernetes. What is the best way for them to get started? Like, are what are the prerequisites that they should be familiar with first before yep. they try to understand Kubernetes? And then once they've tackled those prerequisites, how how do they get started with Kubernetes? Like, where, what should they do, and how do they really begin to get familiar with the with the the project? Yeah, totally. So you know, I I think people. Well, not I think actually I I believe that people who come from an open stack world, you know, or open nebula cloud stack, these people they're going to be able to adapt to Kubernetes extremely quickly. Um, 
because a lot of people say, oh, Kubernetes is complicated. Uh, the truth is that if you if you are a system administrator and that you've been working on virtual machine provisioning and, and uh, uh, any type of orchestration in the data center, you're going to understand the concepts that you have in Kubernetes. You understand the concept of uh, I need I have a, a, a head node. I have a set of worker nodes They need to be able to reach each other. I need to have certificates for them to to exchange data. I have a data store to keep the, the state of my of my cluster. So I think that, you know, sysadmins that that come from that VM orchestration that they're, they're going to be able to pick it up quite quickly. The, the challenge, I think, is more uh, developers that are that are in a, a single machine mindset and that have embraced Docker, okay? So they are running Docker. Now they, they, they can easily run a Redis on their laptop. They can run a MySQL. They can run their Node.js uh, app and, and everything. And now they have to translate from a, a single server world to a data center, fully distributed, remote environment, okay? And, and, and maybe it's a more of a general uh, issue and, and not really specific to, to Kubernetes, but it's that... Uh, yeah, it's for developers to adapt to a more production-ready uh, setup. Um, so, how how do you get how do you get started? I'm very much of the uh, of the belief that first you need to uh, understand containers uh, very well, and you can you can concentrate on uh, on Docker and do a little bit of this reverse engineering that I mentioned at the beginning. Uh, a tiny bit of reverse engineering. I'm not asking you to understand the, you know, the, the kernel. I actually don't know the kernel that well, uh, but understanding Linux namespaces and C groups. And you can play with that. You can learn those concepts just with the Docker CLI. So, you know, dig into the Docker CLI, Docker run, dash, dash, net, you know, start, start containers that are in different uh, network namespaces, start containers that share the same network namespace. And you're going to start seeing this, uh, this reverse engineering process happen, and that's going to help you understand containers much better, and then actually also understand pods, okay? Because usually I, I dive into pods when I, when I do some, some training. I dive into pods starting from the Docker CLI and, and messing with the, the network namespace. So first, you know, let, let's, uh, let's spend some time on, on containers. And then, you know, I'm an old, old school type of guy. You want to learn Kubernetes, you start with the doc, okay? You start with the docs and you go through the docs. And if it takes you, you know, maybe a day or two to read the docs, spend some time reading the docs. Uh, th these days, we are lucky that there are lots of resources out there. And th the challenge actually to, to find the good ones or find the, the ones that you're going to like. Uh, but I like to point out some uh, some amazing interactive tutorials uh, from uh, a little startup in London that's called Katakoda. And you can go to katakoda.com and there are lots of online scenarios. You're not going to need to to provision a VM or or do any configuration of Kubernetes or Docker. You actually get it directly and you have a, an emulated uh, terminal where you can start uh, a learning. The, the the Katakoda tooling is actually used in the Kubernetes uh, documentation website. So as you go through the, the doc, you, you can go through those uh, online scenarios and tutorials so that you can learn all the, the basic concepts. So once you've done all of this, you know, you'll, 
you'll be familiar with all the concepts and then you're ready to start uh, playing with your own Kubernetes. And there, the first thing to do, I think, is to use something called Minikube, github.com slash Kubernetes slash Minikube. It's a single VM uh, that contains all the uh, Kubernetes components. So you end up with a, a Kubernetes endpoint on your local machine. Okay, so for for learning and then local testing, discovering the API, learning the API, then you go Minikube. And then, you know, if you need to go the next step up uh, with um, actually starting to provision your cluster, and that's more for uh, for sysadmin, then you need to start using a tool called KubeADM, Kube Administration, KubeADM. And that's a tool that's extremely easy to actually bootstrap a Kubernetes cluster on multiple nodes. So the master, you'll run kubeadm init, and then the, uh, the, the worker nodes, you'll run kubeadm join. And you, could that, you, could that, you can do that extremely easily, like on DigitalOcean or AWS or, you know, I guess in your, uh, in your VMware infrastructure. Just provision a few like Ubuntu 16.04 machines and then run, you know, run those commands. The, the documentation is, is very good. So I got, I got more, but go ahead, ask me a question. <laughs> no, no, that's great. So I, I like the way that you've laid out sort of a very logical plan for people to get started. And I want to just recap that for the listeners so that they make sure that they get sort of the key points that I heard there. And, and that is, you know, before you get started with Kubernetes, make sure you're really comfortable with containers. So spend some time with Docker um, and the Docker CLI. Understand Docker Run, understand how to use namespaces like network namespaces. We're using the, you know, the dash dash net when launching containers so that you can see how multiple containers might be launched in the same na uh, network namespace and so on and so forth. Once yep. you've sort of mastered that piece, and, and again, you know, listeners, you know, grab yourself a copy of Sebastian's Docker cookbook. I've looked at it. It's a great, it's a great resource. Um, then they, they can progress to sort of reviewing the Kubernetes documentation um, and use that in conjunction with uh, Katakoda to sort of get their hands on without having a, a whole lot of resources that they need to do, devote to that. Moving past that, then they can do some local testing using Minikube, um, which I, in fact, recently installed on one of my Linux systems, um, and I'm uh, playing around with that right now. I kind of went the reverse, but that's a different discussion. Um, <laughs> and then and then once you've kind of gone through that, then you can look at something like KubeADM to sort of bootstrap a Kubernetes cluster on a vSphere infrastructure or AWS or Azure or DigitalOcean or, you know, whatever. Um, so, you know, very logical, you know, giving people a great path to move from, from A to B to C to D. It's great. I think it's very, very useful. And I think listeners will be able to get something out of that, um, you know, sort of right away. Um, you know, so uh, building on that, you know, sort of where would you take people from there? One of the challenges I find is that um, it's, it's great to, as a, I guess as a more of a sysadmin type person, it's great to be able to understand how Kubernetes works and all that, but you almost need workloads to throw onto Kubernetes to really sort of understand traffic flow and how the objects come together and that sort of thing. And that's been, at least for me, difficult to find some useful sample applications, if you will. And I don't know if you have any insight there or, or if you, you know, even agree with that, but uh, um, what are your thoughts? Um yeah, that, that's a that, that that's a good point. Uh, you know, usually I tell people, you know, once once they've done that, I actually I, I point them out to the to the website and uh, and also to YouTube, YouTube.com. There is a channel for the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. We we haven't talked about CNCF, uh, but that's the foundation that that uh, 
governs the Kubernetes project and then other project in the, in the space. The the reason why I manage I, I mentioned YouTube for for CNCF is because if you if you miss the cloud native conference, the Kubernetes conference, all the talks end up uh, online on YouTube. So it's also a great resource if you want to know, you know, how is the Monzo, the, the new bank in London using Kubernetes? Uh, how is Golf now using Kubernetes? You know, how is uh, Ticketmaster using Kubernetes? You can go to, uh, to YouTube and actually listen to their talk. And I, I think, you know, being able to listen to all those case studies even if you miss the conference, is extremely useful. Also, I, I mentioned YouTube because in the Kubernetes channel, you can you can view the community meetings. So it's an open source community. All the the, the SIG meeting special interest groups are recorded and are available online. So you can you can go uh, you can go through those. And I think it's a it's a very good resource to see how the community is functioning. Now, in terms of apps. Um, I, I agree with you because, you know, once you understand the concepts and so on, the one thing you want to do is deploy apps, okay? You want to deploy apps, you want to package apps. Uh, the, the first thing is that for to, to be able to do this, you need to have built containers. So, you know, it's, it's almost a bigger story of how you're going to adopt containerization, but you should have developed a pipeline where you're packaging your containers through continuous integration and things like this. And now you have to actually work on thinking about how you're going to deploy those containers in your Kubernetes cluster and what API objects you're going to use and so on. So it's more, it becomes more of a, your own architectural consulting, you know, design process uh, to, to deploy those apps. If you want to deploy pre-cooked apps, there is github.com slash Kubernetes slash examples. It's a little bit of a challenging uh, repo because uh, it's, I mean, and you know how that is, is that with, with technologies that's moving extremely fast, keeping examples up to date is, is sometimes uh, very challenging. But you get, you get examples uh, in that repo, like a Spark cluster, like a Redis cluster, the, the, the canonical guestbook application. So Kubernetes slash examples, you get a lot. Of course, Bitnami, we also have a ton of application. And if you go to our, our Bitnami, github.com slash Bitnami, and then you find like Bitnami-docker-nginx or Bitnami slash docker slash WordPress, uh, you'll see that we publish Docker Compose files that we you can use locally. But we also publish uh, Kubernetes manifest. And you can use the kubectl, the Kubernetes client, and just basically create those manifests directly on your uh, on your cluster. Yeah, um, so that's that's fantastic. Those are some great resources. I, I do think if you're one of these uh, you know, listeners who um, is in an organization and you're deploying Kubernetes out into production, and you know you've got your own applications and all of that, then yeah, um, you know your discussion around having. You you could have some containers that you've built, and and your your applications that you're packaging to containers, and and then you you can begin to look at how you would deploy those onto Kubernetes. I think the bigger challenge is there's a lot of folks out here listening who want to become more familiar with Kubernetes, and, and so that they can support that. Maybe they're coming at this from a you know a, a partner consulting perspective or something of that nature, where they aren't going to be deploying their own applications; they're going to be helping somebody else deploy applications. And so having some example apps. Um, such as what you mentioned from Bitnami or the Kubernetes um, community, I think are really helpful because it helps 
Uh, it gives them something to deploy so they can begin to understand, you know, the relationship between, you know, a node port and a cluster IP and 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 yep. that sort of stuff, right? You know, just because um, yep. without that, you're just kind of, you know, spinning up nodes and okay, cool, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, if 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 we if we step back just just one second, because I get your, uh, I think I get your point. The, the the five minute you know kind of exercise is to use the kubectl run command uh, because that's a wrapper to basically launch a single container inside Kubernetes. Okay, uh, but that single wrapper is very interesting because it creates a deployment object, and that deployment object creates a replica set object, which then creates pods, and then you can scale and everything. So that single command gets you started, but then you, you, you have to start understanding those objects very well. And then the second command that you do after kubectl run is kubectl expose. And kubectl expose creates the famous service that we were talking about. Uh, so, you know, that's what I would tell people, you know, get on Minikube and then kubectl run. Do, you know, the help is still there. kubectl uh, run dash dash help. And just look at all the options and try to understand that command. kubectl expose dash dash help. Look at the, all the options and try to understand. And then you dive. And then you dive into the API. And as you learn the, you know, you learn the API and all the objects, you're going to be like, oh wow, I can do this, and you know, I can I can store a configuration file, and I can mount that configuration file as a volume, and so you, you're going to learn lots of things like this. Okay, so that's that's great information um, on yep. using uh, kubectl run and kubectl expose to kind of get readers or get listeners started down that idea of understanding services and deployments and all that kind of stuff. So that's super useful. Thank you. Um, as we get ready to, to close, because I want to be conscious of your time and conscious of the time of the listeners, um, I'm just wondering, sort of, any closing thoughts that you'd like to share with the listeners? You know, sort of any final resources that you would encourage them to to take advantage of or any sort of, you know, hey, if there's one or two or three key takeaways, you know, that you get nothing else but these, this is what it would be. Yeah, so first, I think in terms of resources, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll send you some links that, that you can share with the listeners. There's, of course, the awesome list on uh, awesome Kubernetes list on GitHub. And then there's also a, a great uh, a great document that uh, that one, one Kubernetes uh, wrote about uh the certification process uh, for uh, for Kubernetes. What do you need to learn to be Kubernetes certified? So those are open source. They're they're on GitHub. Uh, non you know non free. I would say definitely you know I give a Kubernetes course on Safari, so that's a self plug. So all the Safari subscribers can get to that. And I'm writing a Kubernetes cookbook, so that that should be out. But I'm, I'm not trying to push people to to buy that. Um, there's a, also a course on Linux Foundation, uh, you know, on, on Kubernetes. You you can get that, but you you have to pay them. Um, but yeah, Katakoda is is really a, a great a great start. And then you know, stay stay old school and and go back go back to the to the docs. Now, in in terms of key takeaway, you know, I mean, for me, uh, discovering Kubernetes as I was writing uh, Docker has been has been great. The one thing that I truly enjoy about Kubernetes, uh, you know, aside of the the community and so on, is just the the API. the The API has been very well designed. Uh, it's extremely powerful with lots of objects that that allow you to do lots of things. And and what it what it enables you is that you start forgetting about the infrastructure. 
And this is not this is not a pipe dream. This is not you know I'm not trying to push forward a specific agenda. But even if you are a, even if you are a sysadmin, uh, it's true that you know what we're all trying to do is to build solutions and build apps, deploy apps, so that we we can enable our customers and users. Uh, with Kubernetes, you have an API. You forget about the infrastructure. At some point, you actually forget about the containers. And what you what you go back to is actually managing those applications, uh, interacting with those applications to make sure that they're up all the time, update update them with rolling updates and so on. So it's really shifting the mindset of an IT team to, of course, you know, operating the cluster and so on, and uh, that's it's still extremely important. But it's really putting the emphasis on, okay, what are we trying to accomplish from an application standpoint? What are we trying to accomplish from a business standpoint? So for me, that's what Kubernetes has has allowed me to do. I'm actually going back to my roots, which is building apps. Uh, that's why I'm also looking at serverless these days. Uh, but that that's really the, the power of Kubernetes, a, a super rich API that, that enables you to actually concentrate on, on building solutions at the application level. Uh, that's perfect, yeah. And I, and I think that's really important is as IT professionals, as technologists, we often tend to get so focused on the technology that sometimes we lose sight of the bigger picture, and that is that we are trying to solve a business problem, trying to deploy an application or support an application or or whatever the case may be. And, and Kubernetes kind of you know, helps uh, refocus us on on that part of it rather than, you know, the the minuscule technical details that we often get, you know, so wrapped around the axle discussing. Yep, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a fabulous, fabulous discussion, Sebastian. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your insight and your and your your knowledge. Um, I think the listeners will find a lot of great resources out of this. Um, as we get ready to close, any sort of um, online contacts you'd like to share, you know, websites or Twitter or whatever, so that listeners can stalk you online. Yeah, my, my Twitter uh, at Sebgoa, you know, definitely uh, follow follow me. Uh, uh, I I blog on uh, on Medium Medium dot com slash is it at Sebgoa these days? Yeah, and uh, yeah, I would love to get any feedback from from your listeners on uh, on Kubeless, the the serverless framework I'm working on. So GitHub dot com slash Kubeless slash Kubeless. Awesome, thanks. We'll be sure listeners to include those links in the show notes. Uh, so that you don't have to try and type that in as we're talking <laughs> in your ear. And uh, that way you can uh, have a look at some of that information. Um, thank you again, Sebastian. It was great. Uh, listeners, if you enjoyed the episode, we do ask that you give us some feedback on iTunes or or via whatever mechanism you found the podcast. It's a great way to help other listeners who might be thinking about joining us, um, what your thoughts were, and it just helps us to expand our reach and and, and get this information into the hands of as many people as as possible. Thanks again for listening. My name is Scott Lowe. I'm the host of the Full Stack Journey Podcast. You can follow Full Stack Journey Podcast on Twitter at, at FSJ Podcast. And uh, of course, uh, podcast episodes made available through uh, Packet Pushers at packetpushers.net. We appreciate you guys taking time to listen to us. And uh, thanks a lot. Have a great time, and we'll see you again next time. Bye.